tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our review of The Exorcist, starring Ellen Burstyn, Linda Blair, Jason Miller, Mercedes McCambridge, Lee J. Cobb, Father William O'Malley, and Max von Sydow. Based on the novel by William Peter Blatty, directed by William Friedkin, released in 1973 on a $12 million budget, has grossed $441 million at the box office. That includes some re-releases in the 2000s, but was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, the first horror movie nominated for Best Picture, and it won two Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Sound Mixing. So, Nick, this is the second part of our loose trilogy on Cursed Films. Ooh, yes, it is. It's um second one, and I think this is probably out of the three that we're doing. I mean, they're, they're all really well-known movies, but I think this one is probably the most uh, – I guess when it comes to like horror movies, like this one's always one of the ones that people always put towards the top. Um, it's one of the – even I think even when we look at this too, this one actually came out before The Omen, but it's a, a movie that's really – it was – you know, during when it came out was really a controversial movie. I remember seeing a lot of documentaries on this throughout the years and just the, the amount of media coverage this movie got as far as the graphicness of it and everything like this. And I'll tell you this, watching this movie and I I watched it the other day um, and I've seen it a few times, but it's amazing though, watching this and it's like really for, you know, a seventies movie and everything like this, this really at the time had to have pushed the boundaries because even today it is very, hard to walk in some areas. So I can just imagine, you know, the stories about people passing out or running out in the theaters were, were probably pretty true back then. You know, you're right about the effects in this and how well they hold up. And that's the thing. Practical effects almost always do when they're done well. William Freakin is the kind of director that's going to go for realism. He's a documentary filmmaker in his you know, previous before he started doing feature work. And so he's all about the realism. And I mean, they're actually shooting in Iraq. They're shooting in Georgetown. They're, you know, it's all that stuff. And it's as much they can do. And I mean, you know, so real sometimes it actually damaged people on the set. We'll talk about some of that. Uh, but I got to say this from the top, Nick. I think I've always known this movie's reputation. And maybe it's because of, you know, I studied public relations in college, or maybe it's just I'm a cynic. I don't know. I have never once believed any of the horror stories that I've been told about people were freaking out watching this movie. I can imagine this was evocative and was like, Oh my gosh, it blew people's minds. But all the stories about people passing out and pregnant women giving birth in the theater and all that <laughs> stuff, I'm calling bullshit on it right now. It, and, and Linda Blair has pretty much said as much. It, it was all part of the studio having no faith in the movie. And look, I would not put it above them and power to them golf clap for putting together a great PR campaign because what you, what you wanted to do was make something sound so outlandish that people had to see it, right? They couldn't believe it. They had to be a part of it. And then once they saw it, what they realized is that, yes, this is a horror movie and there's a lot of 
horrific elements in it, but this is a drama and it is a drama about our times and, and the struggle between science and medicine and religion and all of the, those kind of things. I mean, this is a drama in a lot of ways. And I think that's what's kept the movie around for you know, nearly 50 years at this point is not all of the shock and awe, but the substance that was there to begin with. Well, it's a very methodical movie. I mean, it's it's a very, very slow-paced movie, but at no time are you ever bored watching this because the way it, the the mood that it sets and the score too. I mean, we talked last, you know, last time about the omen. The Exorcist, I mean, I think this score is right up there too, with like stuff like Halloween and even like Jaws, where it's like when you hear that, you know, tubular bells type uh seam go off, I mean, it's like you know this movie and it's and it's such a again, a haunting score and just perfect, but you know, watching this movie too. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's, it's interesting because of the time it came out with, you know, you think about the seventies and the social revolutions and everything that was going on during that time. And really you think about like what was going on with Christianity and a lot with the Catholic church. And this movie is a lot of, is, is a commentary a lot on the church itself. And almost like, you know, you see a lot of people there where even like uh, Damien in this movie, he doesn't believe in the exorcisms. He doesn't believe in this old Testament style religion and you see it a lot with these characters, kind of like they're they see something going on, but they don't believe it, but then they want to believe it. And I think a lot of it has to do a lot a lot more with like the social commentary at the time about how minds were changing and everything. So it, it's even like I said, though, it's very relevant even today when it comes to religion, I, I believe. I think it is, too. And we'll get into some of that as we, as we go through this for sure. But it, this movie has such a reputation, you know, and again, being a big fan of horror movies in general. I mean, this one was always on the list of like, you got to see it. You got to see it. I can't remember the first time I saw this movie. I think I was in high school, maybe. But I know the first time I paid attention to it, I was in college. And so I had seen, I think, everything else that it had you know, wrought in its wake. And it itself comes from Rosemary's baby and some of those other kind of things. we talked about that a little bit on the Omen review. And what's amazing is to see how that has now permeated culture because like the whole conjuring series would not exist if this film had not ever been made. Um, you know, just the, the whole setup of that, um, a really good movie by Scott Derrickson that I like called the last exorcism of Emily Rose. Laura Lenny is amazing in that movie. Um, and that's a, that's a good one, but that wouldn't have been made if you hadn't had this. And then, I mean, there seems like there's another one every few days of the rites, the priest, the, the witching hour, you know, there's all this kind of stuff that, that goes around, uh, that seems like old hat to us now because they make them one a year but in 1973 nobody made an exorcism movie nobody knew what that was you know except hardcore catholics and hardcore catholics much like the way it's played off in this movie would have thought that's that hokey thing that they used to talk about in the 1500s and we don't do that anymore and you know it's out it's it's neat to watch how that introduced a term into the lexicon for us. You're right to call it a Jack Nietzsche score though, or, though, because tubular bells is right up there with the jaws theme and with Halloween and all of those other things too. And what's amazing about it is how little it's used in this movie. I mean, they really, I mean, it's at the beginning and it's boom at the end and it's, you know, they, they really don't overuse it. And I think it's in a lot of ways, I've always considered that to be father Marin's theme because it's really his parts that it's, most associated with, I believe, but yeah, just the, the haunting little, you know, the, the piano and the way it works and everything. It's just, a it, it sticks in your head and you know, immediately what you're walking into with that. And, uh, yeah, 
but again, the, the first time I saw this, um, you know, I was a young adult and things like that. So I think I yep. had a different perspective of it than I would have if I'd have seen it as a kid. Yeah, and it's hard for me to say too because I did not really see this as a kid. I saw it early high school. It was one of those movies where I don't know how it was. I don't know if we bought it. If it was like it was on TV and we ended up like recording it. I think I brought this up numerous times. Anytime we had HBO free, it was like the you know the VHS was on constant recording, no matter what it was. So it was kind of fun maybe watching some of those late night movies when I was younger. But uh, different subject for a different time. But uh. When it came to that, I remember watching it actually over at my grandparents' house because they wanted to watch it. So I remember bringing the VHS over because I live right next door to my grandparents. So I remember going over there and having lunch with them and eating nachos when a lot of these like graphic scenes, especially <laughs> with the crucifix, was going on. So it was kind of one of these things where I was like, Ugh, you know, what, 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 watching it. But um, I then did go back and see this in the theater when the version you'd never seen came out, you know, with the spider walk. And yeah, I remember seeing the theater. And it was kind of annoying because I remember watching it and being really engrossed with it. But, of course, there were some teenage girls that were sitting behind me and they were giggling and laughing throughout the movie. And it's like, oh, screw you because you guys are really ruining the aesthetics that are going on here and really, you know, a nice piece of art. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a movie I didn't get to see as a kid. Now, when I watch this, you know, I'm a very, you know, I guess you could say progressive parent when it comes to what I allow my son to watch. And uh, he has now watched The Omen with me and he has watched The Exorcist with me and – he really wasn't phased by it. You know, I think, you know, being that he's a kind of a child of horror as far as what I've shown him. I mean, he's seen everything from Alien to The Shining to new stuff like It. And he enjoyed it, but he wasn't really anything where it left a mark on him. But but as you were saying, though, I think there's so many movies, though, that have taken you know, themes from this and really kind of took this and then kind of took made it into its own thing that what was probably shocking in 73 is not really shocking now. I mean, it's almost like when you watch aliens now where it's like so many movies have borrowed from it and copied from it. And let's just be honest, plagiarized from it. Then when you go back and watch it, you feel like, well, I've already kind of seen this movie, even though that was like the first and same with like the exorcist. No. And I think that's always through art, Nick. I mean, the early movies borrowed from the stage and, you know, that was evident when in March I was doing those March brothers movies with Ron and he would talk about like their vaudeville act and a lot of things that they pulled from musical theater and stuff. And you can see that even today, uh, movies have always borrowed from each other. And I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. It's neat to go back to like when you think of something as the origin of something. And I know exorcist kind of gets put as this big linchpin. And I think a lot of it is because of the critical acclaim it got because there's no way a movie like The Silence of the Lambs, as good as it is, wins the Academy Award for Best Picture if this movie didn't try to do that, you know, what, 18 years earlier, you know. And Friedkin was really sore about that for years. He thought he deserved the best director uh, nod for this. And there's lots of stories as to maybe why he didn't get it for this. But maybe we can talk about that closer to the end. But, yeah, this movie leaves a mark on you. One way or the other. Now, you say your son kind of enjoyed it, didn't really phase by it. I have to tell a story. Several years ago, bought the version you've never seen on DVD, on like a $3 DVD buy, like right after the holidays. My wife and I came back from holidays early, and we had about a week before we had to go back to work. And we decided, let's just hold up, watch a bunch of movies. I think we both had the flu or something. We were just staying inside, kind of like what we're having to do now in COVID-19, except we were both actually sick then. So we're sitting here and watching stuff. And I'm like, you've never seen the exorcist. You need to watch this. And so we pop it in to watch it. And she's like laughing at it the whole time. Like she's not like, you know, giggling girls in the theater laughing at it, but like totally not faced by it, not scared. And at the end was like, eh, 
you know, because as she says, like seen better, you know, because she's more in the modern aesthetic and stuff. So I think it was fun to, to show it to somebody who had no background with it and then was like, eh, you know, now like the gross out scene still got her because that stuff does. But the horror of it, I don't think ever did. And I'll be honest with you. I don't know that I've ever been scared by any of this. I do think it's unnerving. And that's a difference because there was stuff in The Omen that I thought was genuinely scary. But I don't know that I've ever been scared by anything in The Exorcist. And I don't don't know why, because they operate in the same plane of existence. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if scared is the right word, because there's really no movies that I ever get really scared at. I mean, there's stuff like there's jump scares where it scares me, where it's like, okay, well... A loud noise. It's no different than you coming up behind me and like shaking me or something like that. But when it comes to like movies like The Omen and this, yes, you know, I think unnerving is, you know, a, a, a really good term to use. Like it's something that I find, you know, unsettling, something I find disturbing. And I, that, that's kind of almost like how I rate horror movies is like, is, is it a jump scare movie or is it something that's going to be unsettling for me and stuff like this? And this is definitely a movie that's unsettling. So there's a lot of scenes throughout this that, are very unsettling to me, even like watching it now. And I've seen this movie probably a good dozen times and it's amazing with the effects that they still have on me throughout this day, but we'll get into it as we talk more about it. Yeah. And I think it's time to do the plot summary. Then we can't get into the movie. So for the uninitiated spoilers, hot, here we go. A veteran Catholic priest, Father Marin, is on an archaeological dig in Iraq when he discovers an amulet of a demon he is more than familiar with. Meanwhile, in Georgetown, actress Chris McNeil and her daughter Reagan are living near the shoot of her latest movie about student activism or something. When Reagan's behavior becomes increasingly erratic and violent, Chris seeks every answer from the medical and psychiatric community she can find, but none can help the poor girl who is spiraling further into madness. After the death of a friend and director, which Reagan either saw or caused, is investigated by a policeman named Detective Kinderman, Chris falls into further worry about her daughter. Kinderman consults with his friend, Father Karras, who is a psychiatrist. And Father Karras is reeling after the death of his own mother and his guilt and is also seeing strange visions as well. After Chris witnesses her daughter speak in strange voices while committing vile acts on her body, she seeks the counsel with Father Karras, and Karras visits Reagan and then agrees to ask the church for permission to perform an exorcism, though at first he's skeptical. The church sends for Father Marin, and the two priests work together on Reagan. After an intense battle of will with the demon possessing the girl, Father Marin succumbs to his weakened heart and dies. This drives Karras into a rage where he physically confronts the possessed Reagan by punching her in the face several times. We'll talk about it. And after a little bit further, causes the demon to jump into his own body. But with just enough clarity left, Karras throws himself out the window, killing himself, but freeing Reagan of the possession. Reagan remembers none of anything that has happened to her, but is moved to kiss Father Dyer, a friend of Father Karras's, as she and her mother leave for Los Angeles and the movie ends. And that's just kind of the straight line summary. There's a whole lot that goes on in this movie. And, you know, it's so well known. I don't know that plot by plot is the way to go through it. I really want to talk about this from the point of view of our characters. And I tried to write that plot summary from the point of view of Chris McNeil, our mother, Ellen Burstyn here, who I will just go ahead and say gives a fabulous performance in this movie because that role could have been she becomes overly hysterical or she becomes aloof and kind of detached and she plays it exactly where she needs to as someone who is genuinely worried about her kid and has to go to links that she is completely foreign to she's an agnostic to find the answer she's looking for and i thought she did a great job with it 
Oh, totally. I mean, she's playing it as a mother that's in shock and disbelief the entire time. I mean, you see her when there's, you know, you know, Reagan's, you know, when she comes down, when, you know, kind of like she's starting to become more and more possessed and she's talking to an astronaut and saying, you're going to die up there. And then she ends up peeing on the floor and just like her reaction to it, where it's like, you can tell she's kind of like a socialite in some ways. And it's like, oh my God, you know, my daughter, what's wrong with you and stuff and takes her up there, but tries to go get help. And it's interesting too, that they really set up that whole agnostic angle too, because there's a scene in the movie where they, someone had put a cross in Reagan's room because of what she was going through. And she was really upset about that. Like who put this in here? And you can just tell, like, she's at her wit's end where it's like, she's tried, you know, medical, she's tried psychology and everything like this, and she can't get answers. And it's like, what's left. And all she's got to do is go back to the, you know, the ancient ways, so to speak is, you know, and to try to figure out if, you know, she's just re she's almost like grasping for straws when she reaches out to the, to the church at, um, towards the middle of the movie. Oh, completely. I mean, is that the point too? After she's met with all those doctors, she says like, so you're telling me I need to take my daughter to a witch doctor. And what they're trying to convince her is like, well, no, but exorcism can be a psychosomatic thing. And, you know, so they're trying to scientifically break down an ancient religious ritual, right? Which is, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a neat dichotomy that's continually played in this movie. And, it's it's really best surmised by looking at Father Care, the the Jason Miller character, which amazingly enough, he had never done movies before this. He had been in stage and had written plays and things like that, but had never done a feature film. And they got him. And I, I mean, you talk about just awesome casting. Uh, this guy completely played the priest that is the modern day cleric. You know, he's. If you don't know much about the Catholic Church, like not all of them are priests that put on the mass at the church. A lot of them work in other areas. I had a former student once who is a social worker. That is his career. And he's a priest, but he's a social worker. And so I've always kind of thought about that when I've watched this movie is this guy is a psychiatrist. He went to Harvard. You know, he's, he's been to medical school and he sees things as a scientist and as a doctor, but he's also a devout Jesuit. He's, you know, he's got the vow of poverty. He's, you know, faithful. I mean, he lives in a, in a cubby essentially in the back of this building, right in Georgetown. And he, he's, he's in two worlds at once and he's struggling with it too, because he feels like, you know, what we see with the death of his mother and things like that is the guilt he's racked with is that if I was a regular psychiatrist, I would have had the kind of money to give her the care she needs or needed when she was at the end of her life, rather than she got thrown in the back of like, you know, the state hospital or whatever and just withered away. And he's burned up with that. And he I think at some point he's questioning whether or not he still believes everything he's supposed to believe or if he believes what his experience as a clinician has taught him. And I thought Jason Miller did a really good job with it. I think the best thing he brings to it is that the only time you see him lose control of himself is at the very, very end. And that's what's so cool is that he's just cool and calm throughout all of this madness in front of him. Well, totally. I think he's kind of the perfect, you know, almost like doppelganger for the audience. Cause you really think about this, like being in the seventies and that's a time when, you know, and maybe I'm misspeaking here, but it's like when psychiatry and stuff like that is kind of becoming a little bit more well known, you know, before yeah. that it was like, you know, I, I remember like hearing stories of like, you know, some, you know, when my grandma was growing up, it was like, you know, something you never talked about. Like if you went to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, it was a shame. You do not go do that. And now today is it's like it's seen as something is like you, you, that's a strength. If you're going to be able to go out there and seek help like that, you're, you're seen as strong where 
you know, back in like the forties and fifties, it wasn't seen like that. It was seen as like, okay, one over the cuckoo's nest, they're going to put you in a straitjacket. where I think in the seventies, it's kind of a little bit more, it's coming out. It's a little bit more acceptable. And that's what you're kind of seeing with Damien here is he's kind of a man of both worlds. And I think that's really a great representation of the audience, especially at that time. And even today where, you know, people want to believe, but they got all this science and everything in front of them that makes them kind of question that. And with him too, I mean, it's totally that he's going through almost like a midlife crisis at this point where, yeah. you know, when his mom dies, what he could have been, what he could have done, what he could have provided for her. And he's second guessing what he's done in his life. And, you know, it's like, especially now when this whole thing happens, like, especially with Reagan in the beginning is he's very off put by it because he sees this as like, like you said, like an ancient old thing in the Bible that not many people even know about. Uh, wasted his time and it's just almost like hokey where he's very much of science first where, where but you're going to see that kind of slowly transition to being where the science goes kind of to the back of him and more of his faith comes out later so it's to me this movie is very much he's the main character of this movie it's not so much about reagan and what she goes through with the mom it's really a character piece about him and someone who has had faith and basically kind of lost it and him regaining it at the end yeah, I think that's what he and Marin both represent are different spectrums of that because Marin, while he's still very devout and very ingrained, he's he's also, we will learn, he's really responsible for all of this, which is kind of amazing and scary and weird. And I'm not going to try to bring in too much of sequel knowledge into this, but just taking this movie for what it is and what I know the book is in, this all starts because of that archaeological dig and he digs up that amulet and that releases the demon. When they when they dig up that statue of that demon with the one arm up and the one down and the big snake penis and all that, which is, a, you know, it's an actual uh, Marian demon. Uh, Pazuzu is what it's called. It's not named that in this movie, but that's what it's known as. And it, it, it's his fault, you know. And again, if, if you know the sequels, you know that he has done this. And they allude to the fact that he's done an exorcism before and he's done this battle of wills with this this demon before, but he's somebody who's remained ingrained in his faith based on that experience. Whereas Karis has never had to test his deep rooted faith more beyond just what he does on a daily basis as a Catholic priest. He's a psychiatrist and he talks about like he gets called into police stuff all the time and he's seen a lot of psychotics and we should make a difference here too. Like psychologists are therapists and therapy experts. Psychiatrists do therapy, but they're medical doctors. So they're trying to treat the medical causes that may be behind mental illness. And in the 1970s, we knew very little about what the, the chemical imbalances were compared to what we know now. But he would be someone that would be much more focused like your doctor would be. And so he's a. if you think of Karis as a doctor more than a psychologist, I think you kind of get where he's coming from and why it creates this real dichotomy in his brain of everything he believes as a faithful Catholic priest, but everything that he knows because of his experience as a doctor. And then, you know, having to experience all of this now puts him in a different world, whereas Marin is someone who has spent his life, we learned just through dropped lines, researching the occult, digging up artifacts and writing books about it. And as we know, apparently he's the only priest left in the world that's ever done an exorcism, which is kind of like, you know, that's I guess that's like the third bullet on your resume if you're a priest. I don't know. But uh, it, it's neat how those two go together and they're only on screen together for about nine minutes. 
which is if you think about it, like you'd think this whole movie would be that. Yeah, you know, I dropped Exorcism of Emily Rose earlier. Half of that movie's The Exorcism, and watching that go down. This movie, not so much, you know. And I think that's neat the way they play the two priests against each other like that. Oh, totally. I mean, it's it's interesting as far as the, uh, you know, kind of like different sides of the same coin, especially with, you know, Father Marin in the beginning where he's digging up his answers and everything like that, you know, in Iraq and, you know, all like, you know, ancient areas and ancient cities and everything like that, where Damien's a guy who's digging for answers in books and through science mm-hmm. and everything like this. And then they ended up bringing them both together at the end. But it is something, too. I mean, obviously, I've seen the sequels and the uh, uh, prequels, but uh it's one of those things where it's it didn't really hit me at first because you almost kind of forget about Father Marin throughout this movie because he's right right there in the beginning. And it's a very haunting scene, especially when, you know, he uncovers the statue and you got the dogs fighting and everything like this. It's a it's a very, like I said, unnerving scene. And then you kind of forget about him throughout the movie because he doesn't come in until the end. You know, he's almost like the, you know, the cleaner at the end who comes in. And it's one of the scenes that I think here is the most effective. And it's kind of like his introduction to Damien is when he's sitting there and he's listening to after he has a kind of a one on one with Reagan as she's possessed and he's talking Latin to her and he's recording because one of the things about being uh, being in a, you know, being possessed is speaking a language that the person would have no idea how to speak. So he's trying to get him to speak Latin and she's speaking a language, but it's not Latin. She's speaking backwards. And when he's in his apartment and he's playing that back, I mean, that is, like I said, a very unsettling scene. And it's one of these scenes, it's like, there's no special effects. There's no like green vomit or anything like that. It's just that voice. And that voice gets to me every time she talks. It's like that voice is just so pitch perfect as far as just being creepy. And then hearing those different voices and everything where it's like, you know, Marin, bring him, you know, stuff. And it's like, that's where he kind of starts putting it together. That's like, okay, these two have had interactions before. It's kind of like where he starts coming around because up until that point, I think he was kind of on the fence about what was going on. You know, he'd go in there and he's kind of like, okay, well, it's tap water. And that's always one of the guys, one of the questions that I had is when he's putting tap water on her and she's acting like it affects her. It's basically what Marin was saying later, where it's like, it's going to lie to you. It's going to do stuff to try to confuse you. And is, is that what it was doing was it was trying to screw around with him? Yeah. And I, I, I only caught it this time around, honestly, the number of times I've seen this movie. But the first time Karis goes in to see Reagan, she drops that. It's a wonderful day for an exorcism line on it, which, by the way, let's put over Mercedes McCambridge again for that voice work. But don't downplay what Linda Blair was doing in that scene. If you watch the outtakes, she's doing the voice. She's putting on that whole thing, too. So we'll talk about her in a sec. But when when Karis goes into the first time, he says, oh, you'd like that. Why would you like an exorcism? Because and she says, because we'll get closer with you, because I think this demon's whole thing is killing a 12 year old girl is easy. That That's not a problem. What's much more effective is if I take one of the priests and I turn him evil, then I'm making a statement like that to me is like the ultimate infiltration. It's one thing if if you've got two opposing armies, OK, and one army's killing the other army and back and forth. But think about it. If you can infiltrate the ranks of the other army and rise to power and then take out other leaders, you cut the head off that way. Like how much more subversive that is. Think back to the omen too. The whole thing was the son of Satan, the antichrist is to do what? To get in the most powerful position possible. So he becomes the president's adopted son. 
to ultimately become the president. It's the same thing here. And I think that I think it is play acting along with that so that he will keep going down the road toward exorcism because this demon wants Karis and it wants Marin too. I mean, it calls out for him. That's how the, the, he takes it to his diocese and they're, they're the ones that figure out, well, I know father Marin, you know, go get him, go get him and tell him to come over here and do this. So, th- I mean, they know him. So it, it wants both of them because it wants to finish off Marin because they have beef, you know, again, from history and, it wants to take Karis and inhabit Karis the way that it is uh, Reagan. What it doesn't count on is that Karis has enough will power in the end to make the martyrdom, the self-sacrifice. I mean, this movie is incredibly pro-Catholic. Like you can't, I mean, for all the things that, you know, the Catholic church maybe didn't like about this movie, this movie is incredibly pro-Catholic to the point that they cast an actual priest to play Father Dyer, who does screenings of this movie on college campuses every year and talks about it. So I mean like that. Yeah. Yeah. This movie, this movie is incredibly pro-Catholic because that's what it sides down on. So I think that's what the demon was doing though. To answer your question, I think it was playing along to get him to keep coming on with it and bring bring it what it wanted, which was Marin, and then to get a chance to get into him. Well, I think what it was doing was not so much like wanting to kill him, but it's kind of a game to it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like it doesn't have like a stake in it. It's not like if it doesn't do this, it's going to die or not exist. It's more of a game to it. And I think what it's doing is like, well, we have a priest here who's, you know, whatever. And my whole thing is I want him to turn against God is I want him to come in here and do this exorcism and you know what, he's not going to accomplish it. And I'm going to get one of God's children, you know, one of his, you know, people down here that are spreading his word to turn against him in frustration. Yeah. Think about the the story of the, of the apostle Peter. I mean, he denies Christ three times while Jesus is on trial. When people try to accuse him or say, Hey, you're with him, right? And he says, no, three times. And Jesus told him he would, he betrays him. And I mean, that's, that's Satan getting at him. And when Jesus is resurrected, he has this whole conversation with Peter to kind of bring him back in the fold to go, you can, you can turn away, but you know what you really believe. And that's kind of what restores him. But that's the lie the devil tells It's like, well, you just deny it once and then you're done forever. And that's not really, that's not how faith works. And it's not how the Christian faith works either, but you're right. That's what the demon wants is let me get a priest. And I don't think it wants to kill him. I think it wants to be in Karis and be the evil priest. Cause I mean, again, what, what's better than killing your enemy, infiltrating them and then ruining them from within. It could be. I never, I never once took it that it really wanted to get into, get, get into him. I think it was more or less he just wanted to basically destroy these people, destroy anybody mm-hmm. who came in contact with it as far as just destroying who they were, you know, with faith and everything and just, you know what I mean? Just trying to bring down the, you know, the walls of this organization, you know, you know, this would be, you know, Catholicism from the inside. I think that was kind of its goal or, you know, in any way, it's not even really its goal. It's more of just like a, something it does you know what i mean it's just, that, yeah. that's what it always came off with is like it really had no pr- you know it's not like reagan or something like this was a mission to it i think it was more or less you know she was playing with the quiji the quiji board and it was like okay this is someone i can go and get into and i'm just gonna have a little bit of fun and that's kind of like the i guess the more kind of twisted thing when you see here is that these guys it's like this is their mission to save this girl where it's like this demon is just doing it because it can and i think well, that's, that's what i was of- gonna ask you is the ouija board the reason that it attracts to her because if you watch the version you've never seen, you know, or whatever versus the theatrical version, theatrical version opens in a rack and it's at the dig. The version you've never seen opens up. You see the house in Georgetown. You see like big shots of it. 
you see the Virgin Mary statue, then you go to Iraq. And it's almost like you don't know why you were looking at that stuff. So it, it it's to lead me to believe is that, is it like in the house waiting to be called or because I th- the way I read the book and the, the way it plays in the theatrical version is that Marin unearths it. And by having it in daylight again, that's what allows it to escape. And then when you play with the occult kids, this is what happens. It's that heavy handed, uh, again, very uh, Catholic over the head, beat you over the head with you can't even touch the occult because this is what will happen to you. Warning. Yeah, I mean, there's that. And then also, if you look up like what Pazuzu is, it's kind of like I, I don't know what the exact title or what, what the name um, is the definition of, but it has something to do with like the wind or something like that. Like it's like a demon of the wind or something like that. So it could be something where, mm-hmm. you know, it's in Iraq and then the eastern, you know, the eastern wind took it over or something and it just happened to go into her house, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's one of those weird things where it's like. I, it's it, it's open to interpretation as far as like why did it pick her? Does it was it because she was playing with the occult? I think it kind of was. I think it was kind of like it called out to her, call, called out to it, and I think it was kind of a perfect situation where it's like okay, it's kind of an you know a you know a, a well-to-do family and everything like that, and it's like we can have some fun here. And I think that's really kind of what it was. It was like oh, we're gonna hatch onto the first person we can find that kind of you know has a lot of. Uh, you know, upside, I guess, as far as what it can do. So, I mean, that's what I like about these movies. Like this one in the Omen is like, there's a lot of unanswered questions, which I think really kind of strengthens it. I know some people will go, oh, well, you know, it's unanswered questions just because the, the screenwriter just wants to put out there and put these questions with no answers, you know, kind of like a Damon Lindelof thing. But it's like, no, I think when it comes to horror movies like this, the less less is explained, the better. Yeah, that's a freaking thing, actually. I, I want to say that Blatty explains a good bit of it and then had to rewrite his script after Freakin signed on because Freakin wanted it to be more ambiguous. Again, he believes in uh, he's a documentarian. You put things out in front and you let people kind of consume and make up their own mind. This movie doesn't hold your hand at all. And and I think that it, that's we're, we're kind of assigning stuff to it. The way Reagan plays it, it's just like any kid. I mean, if this was 1983, Nick, she'd have been playing her Judas Priest record backwards. I mean, it would have been whatever, you know, caused the occult. She's convenient. And because of who her mother is and where they're located, they're right in between Georgetown. There's all that, you know, there's the, the priests are nearby. It's it's a good target. It makes sense. So we just go with it. Uh, we got to talk about Linda Blair here, though, as Reagan, because I know she never really outlived the shadow of this and doesn't really like to talk about, like, you know, all the mania that surrounded her. After this, she'll talk about like having her back broken on set and you know, all the crazy stuff and then how nice everybody was and how much she she still loves William Freakin um, and thinks he's a genius and says, you know, the thing about working with geniuses, you're going to get put through the ringer bomb. But she was able to do it. And the fact that, that, you know, they hired Elaine Dietz to really do most of what she was supposed to do. And she did some of the parts, but a lot of that is Linda Blair just acting and figuring it out. And that's the amazing part here is we, we've talked about before with horror movies and kids. A lot of time you got to lie to them to get them to do the performance, right? Like the kid, at, you know, at, at Harvey Spencer Stevens in the Omen. I don't think they told that kid at all what he was in. He had no idea, you know, and then he did that movie and went away. Linda Blair knew what she was in and then gave a performance as Reagan. That is really startling in so many different ways. Oh, totally. I mean, she's, She's a big standout here, and it is one of these movies, kind of like almost like Mark Hamill in, St- in Star Wars and like, you know, other people where it's like you're just never going to get past this because your image is just so ingrained into the popular culture because of this. 
And, you know, one of the things, too, with her is, like, she gives, gives a great physical performance. I mean, mm. when you see scenes with her, like, with the eyes and the makeup and everything like this, I mean, it's it's unnerving. Like I said, it's something where, mm. you know, just watching her stare and not even do anything, it's like you want to turn away, but it's like at the same time, it, like, it creeps you the hell out. It's like it's one of those things where it's like later at night when you get up at 2 in the morning to go grab a water or something like that, and it's like – you feel someone's like watching you or something. It's like, those are the eyes you think of, you know what I mean? Where it's like, it's something that's beyond this earth and just something that is pure evil. And that's another thing about this movie is I just, I love the slow transformation of her throughout it. It's like the exorcist face that you get to know is not until the really until like, you know, you know, but at least a little over halfway through the movie, it's a very, very slow stuff. And I just, there's so many little small beats in here I like. I like the stuff where you kind of see that little glimpse of the demon face throughout the movie. Again, it's kind of one of those things like Fight Club where it's like, did I just see what I thought I saw? And just like other stuff, like when uh, Damien's over and he's getting that, he's listening to that recording and he gets a call from the maid or you know whoever it is, the nanny or whatever, and they come back and you see like help me being ridden in her stomach and everything like that. Like it's just... Things like that are just so well done, and a lot of it too is like has to do a lot with her just physical acting. It's like you believe it's it's a child that's sick watching this, and yeah. you and even when you're seeing it's you know grab the cross and you know slam it into her genitalia and telling someone to like you know whatever. I mean, there's a lot of pretty graphic and vulgar stuff that she says. You are still rooting for her as a character to get through this. You never once turn on her. And I think that's yeah, a lot she, to her physical performance. Yeah, she never does anything wrong. That's the thing. It's like she, she, yes, she's playing with the Ouija board. So technically, that is her fatal flaw or whatever. But th- that's magnets, and you know, there's a lot of reasons the Ouija boards work the way we do. We don't need to get into, you know, tearing down Hasbro or Milton Bradley right now. But the thing that you want for Reagan is you realize is that you're not watching her. You're watching the possession of her. And I think her best stuff is not when she's strapped to the bed. It's when they do the hypnotist thing with her and she's got her hand up in the air. And that, that, uh, psychologist comes over to her and stands next to her and says, I want to talk to the person that's inside of Reagan now. And she reached down and grabs him by the balls and literally like twists them off. It looks like, and just the performance, like to do that and go there with the eyes and all of it, it, it is, it's unnerving and it sits with you. That sits with me more than you know, spitting up the pea soup and when she gets all the lesions on her face and all that stuff, which by the way, Rick Baker hats off once again, very young Rick Baker doing work here, but fantastic work on this. But to me, the, the more intriguing stuff is when she's doing that. And then also when you watch her go through all those medical procedures, like some of that where they're injecting the dye in her and they're running that camera around her in 360 degrees. And you're just sitting there going, Geez, in 1973, man, medicine was still archaic in a lot of ways, even though it was so robotic. And that, I think Freakin did that on purpose because, you know, even in 1973, people would have thought, OK, this is real advanced medicine here or whatever. But, yeah, it's still kind of painful to go through procedures. Even today in 2020, it's still that way. So I think that's what he's, he's showing is that medicine will tell you that the, the Catholics are all archaic and old school. But a lot of what they what we're doing here is just uh, newfangled torture. Yeah, watching her with the, I guess it was with the brain scan or whatever, and what they had to do to her throat as far as like the injection and everything like that. That was, 
I'm not good with needles as it is and kind of watching that and then the blood squirting everywhere, which I, I, I don't know. I've never seen that procedure done. I've never had it done to me, thank God. And it's one of those things where it's like, ah, you know, they got they had to start doing a little little geyser of blood coming out and everything. But it, that, it, 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 it was effective. That is how that is done, though, because the team you see doing that are the people that do that. They're radiologists and they it, William Friedkin came in and watched them do that procedure and asked them to be in the film and to recreate it for for the film. So that is you know 100% medically accurate at least for 1973. That's how that was done. So yeah, that yeah, that's why that so I think that's why that works so well is cuz it looks so real cuz it was. Yeah. I and mean I, they didn't really have Luna Blair, but that's how you would do that. Yeah, and I I've had a procedure done cuz I, I had heart surgery when I was 16 and I remember having like maybe a few years later i'd have like a dye test or whatever like they look at like something and yeah. i don't know what the hell it was but it was like it, it's a weird experience so i can't imagine what it was like in the 70s but in like the mid 2000 you know 2002 2003 it's weird i mean I, when i had this dye injected into my arm it was like you feel like this warmness going up your arm and then you actually feel it go to your heart and then once it goes to your heart you feel it just go everywhere and your body's just covered like in this warm sensation so it's something that's very very strange so and that's the way it is you know that you know 15 18 years ago so i can imagine what it was like back then so i can kind of feel for her when she's going through it so it's 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 a well done scene and i think one actually one of the more effect, one of the most effective scenes when it kind of gives you the uh you know makes you kind of look away <laughs> I've got a question for you, though, because one of the things we see, one of the first real evocative scenes after she's going through all these procedures and when she's finally in her room and, and stuff is going on is we get the flash to that Virgin Mary statue. And it's been given like these Madonna Vogue bra pieces and it's got a penis on it. I mean, it's been desecrated, basically. And this priest walks in. And of course, to the, that priest, that would I mean, it would have been the most sacred thing. You just like destroyed it in front of him. Does she do that? Is is possessed Reagan called to like leave her bed and get like a bunch of modeling clay and go do that and then climb back into bed? Like, how does that happen? I, it's not explained, so we're just left to interpret. Yeah, I mean, I think it's her, and as well as the murder that happens later, it, I think it's just it's alluded that it was her. And again, it's just games that it's playing because a lot of this stuff is like they think she's sedated or she's on medication and she's not able to do it. And I think she's able to, you know what I mean? It's kind of one of the things where she's going to have some fun. And just because of what she's going through, they're never going to guess it was her. So I, I totally think it was her that desecrated the statue as well as killed the, you know, the drunk director that was over. You know what I mean? I think it's something where, yeah, she broke the guy's neck and threw him out the window. Oh, I mean, yeah, turned his head completely around. What you talk about a great callback too when she spins around and then that actor's voice is like, Do you know what she did to me? You know, and to watch that's the other thing that I think Ellen Burson does such a great job in the best scene in the movie is her finally talking to Karis when she says to him, My daughter killed Berg. She killed the director. I mean, Kinderman's kind of asked her and kind of tried to lead her down the road of like, Do you think possibly your daughter may have done this, you know, or whatever? But she can't accept that at that point. But later on, after everything that's happened, she finally realizes like, yeah, she probably did. And you know, what a also, man, talk about a weird, just normal character in there. I mean, I guess he's just supposed to be the obnoxious director, but I mean, he picks on that poor German Butler, like mad, like that is so strange. And again, in, in another movie, you wouldn't even have that scene because it doesn't serve any purpose except to make you think Burke's an idiot. But just the way he keeps going after that guy about being German and being a Nazi and stuff. It was, it was really strange. 
Yeah, it's it's wonder. I wonder if it's something. I don't know. The guy kind of reminded me of like maybe you know, kind of like a Roman Polanski look to him. You know what I mean? Just being like, it kind of does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder if it was kind of a, I don't know, comment on him or something like that because I, I know that you know Polanski is a European, and then you know I don't know if it's some weird whatever that freaking was doing, but it just when and I saw the character and then he's a director, I'm like, I don't know. It's just like thoughts no, of mean, Roman it, Polanski came it, to it, my head. I mean, he definitely plays it a little bit like Polanski would have been at the time. Maybe not as drunk and lecherous. I don't. I don't know. Polanski's got his own stuff, so we'll leave him off the off the side here. But I mean, that's how it's written in the book too by Blatty. You know, this guy was just a drunk, obnoxious, you know, director, and yeah, he's kind of scraggly looking. But you kind of get the sense that maybe him and Chris are starting to hook up. And you know, if you think that doesn't happen, go check out Hollywood Marriages sometime. I mean, we all know that that goes on, but I, I just thought it was, it's always one of those things again, that's left unexplained about the Mary statue. And I just wonder, but I think you're right because we know she kills Burke and that, yes, yeah, she somehow or another was able to go in and pull that off. But um, that's one of the things too, that I think I had always forgotten about this movie is what happens to that statue and the, the way that that comes out, it just comes out of nowhere. You know, and uh, it's very evocative and, and gets the scene uh, just right. Um, mm-hmm. I, the, the more the exorcism or the more the possessions go on, the worse she gets and stuff. And I think when, what's neat to watch this movie unfold is you've called it a slow burn. And I think you're, you're exactly right on this. I mean, it's 30 minutes this movie happens before anything happens. I mean, really, it's just a bunch of character building and we're kind of meeting people. And it would be like if you were watching a show and the first three episodes were just telling you who everybody was, but nothing happened, you know, and you didn't know. And then then everything starts to happen and, and it just gets more and more ratcheted up. And I, I want to ask you, like, is there a modern equivalent to something like this that you can think of in the genre today that just slowly builds itself? Because I feel like every horror movie does the the jaws or the psycho or the Halloween formula where we got to get a kill immediately and then we'll get some more in the middle and then all of it at the end. Yeah. I mean, it's weird because even though you're kind of saying that and I agree, you know, this movie, when you, when you kind of lay it out like that, you're thinking like, okay, is the movie kind of boring or something like that? And no, there's scenes in this movie that are, that keep you interested. Like I said, like the whole thing with like Iraq and, the music swelling and the statue and the dogs fighting everything like that. It's like, it's an unnerving scene. So it kind of like, it kind of slowly goes up and then it goes back down. It's almost kind of like waves watching it. And towards the end, it gets a lot more chaotic and the waves start coming in a lot faster and a lot higher. But I guess, you know, trying to think of like modern movies here and I'm not really like a big horror modern fan. I'm more of like, like I said, like I like the seventies a lot more. I'm even thinking like something maybe almost like the quiet place or something like that, where it's like, that movie is a lot more kind of laid back in the beginning. You've got a couple things that go on, but it's not until really the end that everything kind of ratchets, ratchets up. But I don't know. I mean, it is a lot like almost kind of laid out like Jaws in a way where it's like, you know, the first two thirds are very low key. You get a couple little scenes there or even like Alien where really, you know, it's not until the end where it really starts taking off a lot where you got it's a lot more of a slow burn character piece with a couple little high points in, in you know, kind of put between it. So I don't know. The Exorcist is it's just it's kind of its own thing. I think that's kind of why it's always kind of alone and always seen as one of the best horror movies is that it is a drama first and but it just does it so well that you're never bored with it. So it's like I said, I don't really think any other horror movies that have really caught that same cross genre vibe that this one has. 
I, I see what you're saying, and I don't disagree with you necessarily, but just from my own taste or something, honestly, I I prefer the theatrical version of this to the, the extended director's version you've all seen, whatever version that's out there now, because it, at, even at two hours, it, it still feels about 15, 20 minutes. Like we could have tightened it up just a little bit more. And I, I would have to go through it scene by scene to tell you, like, trim that, cut that a little bit here. And I mean, again, I'm telling people that have made a classic movie what to do with it. So who the hell am I? But I, I do I do think it could be a little tighter. Um, and I think it would still attract more modern audience. But I do think you're right to call out that it is its own thing and it kind of works. And I'll be honest with you, for me, man, this movie works so much better in those quiet moments. I mean, I said before that I think the best scene is when McNeil goes to see Father Karras to finally ask him, will you you know, how do I go about getting an exorcism? And the way she just sort of slow plays that conversation with him before she takes her glasses off and he sees like how beat up her face is and stuff. I just, I love the desperation of that and how he is clearly realizing, like, I, I don't think you know what you're asking for. Uh, one, we don't do that. And two, why would you ever want that? And, but he realizes this woman is incredibly distraught, not hysterical, but she clearly is at her wit's end. And so as a one, as a priest, but two, as a therapist, I need to attend to this and see what can I do to try to help. And yep. I, I, I think that, I think that that scene in particular really encapsulates what makes this movie so good and work is that it's so good in the quiet moments. It is. And I think, you know, kind of even going back is like, you know, what movie, I guess this kind of reminds me of, and it's another seventies movie that I watched not too long ago is taxi driver is just a lot of like the slower beginning and just character moments and trying to figure out who this guy is until it all kind of comes to an head at the end. So, I mean, obviously another seventies movie, you know, with, you know, Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro, but kind of almost the same feeling throughout it, as far as just like, again, that methodical movie where it's so much more character driven, but yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing is like with, uh, with, with father Damien and everything like that, when he finally agrees to go over there too, it's like, you can totally tell like when he's going to go over there, is that he's not taking this as a, a demonic possession. He's taking it as, okay, well, I'm going to go in there and see what the hell's going on with her mentally because that's what it is. It's like I'm yeah. going to kind of use my religion and being a priest as a smoke shield for me to go in there as a medical professional and try to help her out. Yeah, and I mean, we've already talked about he uses real water and gets the same reaction that you know supposedly holy water would have given him. And I love how when he comes out of all of that, and that's a great first encounter that those two have when he's trying to talk to Chris again and he, he's telling her it was just tap water. It's just that, you know, like I, I can't, I know what you're saying. And yes, that is very strange and very weird, but I think your daughter's just very ill. And, you know, I know you've been through a million doctors, but don't you want to go again? Like he's trying to again, offer a modern answer to an ancient issue. And for, for a priest to do that, you can see how it just unnerves her. And it's, it's when he's playing the tapes back in his little dorm room that he lives in or whatever, that he finally realizes, Oh, it's not a foreign language. It is. She's speaking in backwards because the demon's speaking in code through her. Cause it wants who's father Marin? What's that again? And that's when he goes and asks for, that's what convinces him to go and ask for the exorcism. And I love how the, the Catholic church plays that off. Like they would, it's a bureaucracy. Okay. 
we'll consider it. We have to talk to some people, run that up the pot. In the meanwhile, you keep doing what you're doing. And I love that there was like, well, and it wasn't going to be tomorrow. You know, the yeah. movie plays it like it was, but it's probably a week or two. You know, Marin's back in town, but or back in the States, but we don't know. You know, he doesn't know anything about this. We've got to get word to him and to get that cutaway scene of that, um, you know, guy running after him um, and, and going, Father, we have an urgent message for you. And he takes him the whole thing. I don't know. I, just, I thought that was uh, well done, that it wasn't a pick up the phone, priest here, boom, let's go to war. Yep. Yeah. The things, I mean, I think totally the highlights of this movie, though, are just when, you know, Karis is in there with, with Reagan and just the back and forth that they have all those times. It is like, it's such, there's such good scenes. And, you kind of question a lot of stuff what's going on, but then when you kind of watch this movie a few times, you really realize what or the possessed demon was doing with him. It was playing, like I said, it was playing games with him. Like when he walks into the room and he's like, who are you? And she's like, Oh, I'm the devil. And and later he's like, he's not the devil. You know what I mean? It's like, it's possession, these exorcisms, it's not the devil doing it. So the fact that it's saying it's the devil makes me think that it's not an exorcism. Or when he comes in there, it's like, oh, you have straps on. Why don't you take the straps off if you're so powerful? And it's just like, oh, in, in due time. And yeah, I mean, but. that's the thing is it could do whatever it wants, but what's the fun in that? You know, yeah, I want to make this, I, I want to go through this with you. And I mean, I, and I love how he also realizes what Marin will tell him later. This thing will lie to you. It will try to confuse you. And he knows that from the beginning because it says, oh, your mother's down here. And he says, okay, what's her uh, maiden name? And it doesn't answer because it either doesn't know or it realizes it's like, oh, so you're trying to trick me. Okay, we'll play it that way. And I, I don't, I love how they're both kind of counterstepping to each other the whole way, which is, is neat. Well, Ma- well, Marin explains it perfectly later is when, you know, like when uh, Damien's talking about it and he's like, well, I think there's, you know, I want to give you the background. And Marin's like, I, I don't need the background. I don't need the background. I, I don't need to know it. And then like later he's like, I really want to tell you the background here. And he's like, okay, well, what do you have? And he goes, well, I think there's three people in there. He goes, it's not three people. It's the same one. And again, it's like, it's doing it to confuse you. And he even says it too. He goes, it's going to lie to you. And then the truths are going to be there with lies in it as well. Because again, it's going to try to is basically screw with your head. And that's the whole thing is like, you know, like the, the, he comes in there one time and she opens up the dresser drawer on him and he's like, do it again. It's like in time, you know, I'm not going to sit there. I'm not, I'm not your pawn. I'm not going to sit here and do what you want to do. I'm playing with you. You're my toy. And that's the whole thing. It's like, it's just having fun with them. You know what I mean? Even like when Mm -hmm. he brings up like, Oh, what was my mother's maiden name? It knows what it is, but it's like, okay, I'm in control here. You're not, you're not going to, I'm not here to do your tricks. I'm here to, you know, I'm in charge. I'm here to screw around with you. And I'm not going to tell you because you know what, that's going to feed into what you want to know. I rather not tell you to keep you on edge, to keep you guessing if this is real, because that's the fun. That's the fun it's having. Well, and that's how you win too. Is you keep your your opponent off balance, and that's what this is doing, especially in a battle of wills. And we haven't talked about it, but man, Mac Foncito coming in here, he's in his mid forties. Heck of a makeup job. I've always thought he was like you know eighty. I mean, he's just kind of always looked that way, and I think he's played that role. In, he plays an Robinson. old man great. He, he's been playing. He's, he played an yeah. old man great for fifty years. <laughs> yes, he did. He really did up until his, his passing. He played an old man for fifty years, and he was awesome at it. And he is so good here because, and, and I'm glad you called that scene out too, where he's like, "I don't need to know anything. 
I'm here to do the exorcism. I'm here to read the word of God. Here's what we do. Here's how the right goes. You have to answer it the right place. And I love how he has to kind of coach, carry us through it. Like Damien, answer Damien, you know, and he's just keeping him going. And what, what you see in that is that if Karis was a priest that had maybe lost a little bit of his faith, or maybe he lost his faith, let's just put it out there, and it may be given over to science, but was kind of living in both worlds at the same time or trying to, what you're seeing is him reestablish his faith based on the, you know, the levitations and all the other things he's seeing. He realizes, oh, it, it is it, a Han Solo. It's all true. All of it. I mean, that look on his face, it's all real, you know, and instead of, oh, now I have to question everything I know. It's nope. I know what to do. I'm going to be a part of this. And the thing is, though, he loses his way because the the demon finally gets him to to lose his concentration. And Marin has to send him out of the room to calm down. And what I love is the way Marin calls him. He's like, you got to leave. You got to go. But he doesn't like chide him for it. I mean, he yells at him to get his attention, but he puts his hand on his shoulders like, it's okay. I understand. Go take a breath. I got it. You know, and I, I don't know. I always thought that was a great scene between the two of them when he lets Karis go. Oh, it is. I think every scene between them is great. I mean, I even like the two, like, you know, when they're getting ready to go in there, it's almost kind of like, you know, a movie like, you know, an Aliens where she's grabbing the guns and duct taping them together and putting it on there like she's, you know, you know, getting yourself all like, you know, tactical up. I mean, they do it in the matrix and here it's like, okay, well we're doing it, but it's going to be, we're putting on the collar. We're putting on the white robe. We're getting our holy water better and uh, holy water ready. And it's like, it's still, I mean, kind of badass watching these guys go up the stairs and everything and go into this room. That's, I mean, ah, my God, I mean, just giving more, you know, uh, credence to Linda Blair, that room had to be freezing because you could see. Yeah, it was a freezer. Yeah. They built it in a freezer. So, (laughs) oh man. And she's wearing a, she's wearing a little thin little like nightgown too. So it's like, you know, she had to be, you know, just you know cold to death there there are tons of stories about like all the pneumonia everybody had on this set like nowadays like you you would never do a set like this yeah you just cgi the breath in i mean that's just what you do and everything we can freaking shot a gun off you know to get a reaction out of somebody in this movie like it's yeah it's nuts all all those stories are are well documented and and i encourage you to read them because they are you can laugh at him now, but you can also realize like what, what everybody went through to make this. But the cold breath and the change in the temperature, it's like, almost like they're stepping into another world to do battle with this demon. It's I mean, Stephen King borrowed that in it. The ritual of Chud, whether you thought it was realized well or not in that second chapter of the most recent version of the movie uh, in the book, it's pretty clear like what's going on in terms of like how just how far enough a place it is and all that. And I've always thought that this was maybe what inspired some of that for him among other things, but totally. And I think that's even kind of the whole, when you look at Stephen King's it and kind of what the kids do, it's not about even so much what they do, but that they believe in what they do. And that's the same thing here is with the exorcism, you know, they're going through, you know, everything here as far as, you know, saying the scripture out of the book, the Holy water and everything, but it doesn't mean anything unless they believe in it. And that's the whole thing is like the power of faith and everything. And you see, it's kind of like what you were getting at is that when Reagan, then when, when Karis is back in there by himself, she's going to sit there and bring back up the mother again and try to get him down and try to like, just break them and everything with the mother and the voice. And you left me to die. You left me to die. And it finally, like you said, it finally breaks them. And I think that's when 
Father Marin, I think he knows that he's going to his death. I think when he pull, takes him out of there, I think he realizes it's like, it's time. You know what I mean? It's like to kind of get this thing done and to save this girl, I need to die. Yeah, and they both sacrificed gets- themselves. That's a great reading of it. I hadn't thought about that. But Marin has a weak heart that's set up early on. You know that. You kind of see it in in the course of the exorcism bits where he's working with Karis. And when what I love is that we don't see it happen. Karis walks in and sees what's happened. And he knows immediately. And then that's what you know sets up forth our final you know battle. But I, I love that that was the reading of it you got and that you brought that out because that's a fantastic point. He knows he's gonna die, but that's what he's gotta do because that's his role. He needs to go die. That'll make Damien regain, you know, faith power or whatever, you know, Bible up again, whatever you want to say, and go back in there and finish the job. Yeah, because the only way, as I think that they realize, or the only way you can beat this is by the way that Father, you know, Father Karras does. And the only way for that to happen is for Marin to die. It's got to be able to get him to cross that line to be mm-hmm. able to, enough of this, enough of this, take me, you son of a bitch. That's what you want. That's what you want. You want to get into me. And basically, it's almost like his anger and his reestablished faith and stuff like that. He's able to take the demon into him, but just gain enough control for a minute to be able to self-sacrifice himself. And I don't think it's so much that it's like he died with the demon in him, and that's why it went away. It was because he purposely killed himself. And that act of salvation and the act of self-sacrifice to save her is what vanquished his demon at the end. It wasn't necessarily that it was like, oh, you're in me, and now I kill myself, and now you're gone. Mm -hmm. It's more or less the acts that he did that was able to prevent the demon from going back, you know, going back into her or jumping around, no matter what the sequels say, you know what I mean? It's like, it's that act that he did again, believing in himself and believing in what he's doing was actually what was able to vanquish the, with the demon in the end. Yeah. I mean, it's the idea of sacrificing Christianity, that's what defeats evil. Ultimately, Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for our sins, died, was buried and resurrected. You know, the, th- the only difference is, is that, He's the son of God. That's why he gets to be resurrected. But Damien Karras is not going to be resurrected, but he died for someone. Jesus taught his his disciples and his apostles that the, the greatest thing you can do for someone is lay down your life for them in self-sacrifice. You know, that that is what both of these priests do for this girl's soul. And I don't think Pazuzu's dead any more than I thought it was corporeal. At any one time, in spite of the fact that, that we do get that great scene where she's writhing on the bed and the statue appears again and all that, that's really well done. Even for 1973, that looks good now. That's a, that's amazing. But I think it just moves on, but it can't do anything else because, well, you you dine for self-sacrifice. That's my, that's the trump card you have. Is I can't beat that. So, all right, round one is yours. I think it was enough where it kind of punched him back to where he came from. You know what I mean? Where it was like. I mean, he's not dead or whatever, anything like that, but it's more or less, it's like, you're, you're done here. You know what I mean? Because if you're going to be able to believe in the fact that there's the devil and this demon, you got to believe then that there's God and something else like that. So maybe it's the hand or that influence coming in being like, okay, you know what I mean? I'm going to stop this from happening. You know what I mean? It's like, this card was been dealt, you lost here, and now we're going to go play another game later. But yeah, yeah, for that being done. But that's the one thing I always watch this movie though it always amazes me though it's like after he falls out i'm like man does that street get crowded with people really quick i mean yes everywhere i mean up on top of the stairs where he fell i mean i'd be get there quick say, oh yeah they're they're super fast and like you know everybody's standing on those stairs and i'm like 
you're probably standing in the dude's blood. You know what I mean? It's I just, like, I just great though that Father Dyer's leading him the reading him the last rites, and he's got just enough strength to squeeze his hand a couple of times for yes. You know, like he's obviously his face is completely destroyed. You know, he's he's going to be dead very soon, but he's got just enough to be able to say, you know, to to give him the Iggy. You know that yeah. And and I and I give it to again that priest is not an actor, uh, Momali for laying that out and showing genuine emotion. That was a friend. That was somebody he you know he cared for deeply, and he knows he sees what's happened. You know because obviously he would be aware and he sees the sacrifice and it's just I don't know it's it's a it's a touching end to what had I mean again after all of the vile and crazy stuff we've seen to see it end on something like that and then the way it ends you know a few days later or whatever it is where they're packing up and you know uh, Chris is saying goodbye to the assistant and the driver's getting ready to load him in and Reagan doesn't know anything but she looks at they focus on that collar. And she sees the collar of Father Dyer, and it's almost like she knows, like, I need to thank a priest. So she just jumps up and gives him, like, a quick peck on the cheek, like a kid would, and then gets in the car, and that that's it. I mean, I I thought that was really well played. Yeah, it's something where she doesn't know what happened, but I think she's got, like, a weird feeling about, you know, the importance of that and what that person represents in her life and stuff. But there's always kind of one question that I had was, like, okay, well, she killed that director and it's like, I know they're getting out of Dodge right now and everything like that, but it's like, is that ever going to come back to haunt her? Because that still is a death when getting thrown out of her window. And now this other guy gets thrown out of her window. It's like, you know, the cops detectives, you know, they're probably going to have some more questions. I'll happen in that room. Well, I think it's explained. Ken, Kenderman plays it off and, and it's in the, 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 again, the extended version where he talks to father Dyer. He's, he's trying to get Karis to go to a movie with him and he never really does, but he tries to get Dyer to go with him too. And the way he talks about it is like, it's a lot of just unexplained things. And we're just going to let this go because I can't explain it. And moreover, why would I want to, and I kind of get the sense that Kenderman comes to the understanding of like, some things are best left just, unknown and we'll just move on kind of like he's just kind of slapping his hands and going nah, i'm i'm out i'm not touching this one with a 30 foot well i mean it's it's the same kind of thing like if you've seen the original dirty harry i mean that ends so like the fact that, that movie ever had sequels is amazing because it ends at the perfect moment dirty harry you know again let me spoil a 40 50 year old movie here shoots the bad guy and then he throws his badge and gun in the river and walks away you know it's like i did my job i'm done you know, I don't, I'm not going back and filling out paperwork. I'm not sitting in a meeting about this anymore. I'm done. And he just walks. And I don't know. I, I think the 70s are full of that kind of thing. The ambiguous kind of downer ending, if you want to call it that. I don't think that the I don't like the theatrical version where we don't get the tacked on with the detective. I like it where Father Dyer weighs and he turns around and two of the barrels kicks in and then we're gone. You know, and oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. The less explained, the better. But yeah, with that, the whole reaction just reminds me of being like, you're at a fa- bad family dinner with politics going on, and you're just like, you know what, guys? I'm going home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not dealing with this anymore. <laughs> exactly. Well, then we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to get final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, what are yours for The Exorcist? Uh, I think it's pretty obvious. I mean, I don't think I said one bad thing about this movie the entire time, and it's going to go down as an extra large popcorn. I think this is kind of the pinnacle when it comes to horror movies. Again, I I just love 70s cinema. I think it's the best decade in cinema. I've said that many times. 
And when I look at, you know, a lot of the other movies like The Omen and stuff like The Shining and, you know, they kind of came out, you know, within a relatively like a 10-year period or closer to it, this movie still is, I think, the best of the bunch. And there's a reason for it. I think when you look at the score, you look at the acting, you look at the makeup, you look at just like the entire methodical feeling throughout. The movie is so calculated that to me, I know you're talking about later, like trimming it down. I wouldn't trim anything out of this movie, and at least for the theatrical version. I just think that just those little extra beats and just, they just work so well. I just, I couldn't take anything away from here. Just, you know, everything with the mom to just seeing scenes of her sitting on the couch to, you know, Damien back in his uh, apartment room to the stuff in Iraq to everything in the movie, I think is just so well done. I think freaking is just, he was firing on all cylinders when he made this movie. And for me, it's, you know, the best horror movie ever made. I, you know, we talked about maybe the Omen was up there for me, but really just revisiting it. I mean, I think the Omen's number two and the Exorcist is number one for me. Yeah. I gotta say that this movie is made so well. It's, it's an impeccable piece of art. It really is. And I will, I'll go on record now joining you. The, the theatrical version is by far the superior version. I, I, I don't care that I don't see the spider walk and some of that extra stuff. I don't think it adds anything to it. I think this movie, it could, could trim itself a little bit and truncate just a bit, but not a ton. I don't, I'm not talking about cutting 30 minutes out of it. I'll be honest with you. You want to cut one thing out of this movie? could probably cut Detective Kinderman out of this movie, at least as much of it as he gets. You could trim him down and you still get the same effect because the better, more interesting characters are able to shine through all of that anyway. Um, William Friedkin, it's not his best movie. French Connection is his best movie. I'll, I'll say that now. But this is a fantastic film. And he did a, an incredible job and he had to go to extreme lengths to get it. But what he got out of this built something that does last the test of time. That said... That's it. This movie has a reputation that I think is built again on an incredible public relations campaign to put itself over as something bigger than it was before it had a chance to really build the audience. The, the difference is, is that it, not only is it a lot of sizzle, but the steak's actually good. So this isn't like going to like a private steakhouse and private butcher and you get some wangu beef or whatever that you go to a chain restaurant that you've been told this is a great steak, you know, and you're like, yeah, okay, okay. And you finally get it. And when you're done with it, you're like, you know what? It's still pretty good. You know, this movie holds up and works and it's not my favorite horror movie, but is it in the top 10 of all time? You betcha big time because of everything that it wrought. Again, I named all those franchises today that would not even exist if it weren't for this movie. So this is, this is an extra large popcorn and it's one that if you haven't seen it in a while, it's worth revisiting. And again, I would recommend the theatrical version for that. Um, I'm going to go on record right now, though, and say, Nick, I don't think there's any reason ever, unless you're just a completist and you can't stop yourself to watch any of the sequels to this movie. The second one is a total disaster. The two prequels that are the fourth one are just awful and that third one is as a different world <laughs> and it's just not the i don't know it came from a different place and i know william peter blatty really holds it up as a thing but i i don't even consider it part of the same universe i, I think this is a one and done in a franchise and like i'm so glad that we're not trying to do all of them because i don't know that i could get through them yeah the sequels are not good and the prequels are even worse i mean you go to the exorcist 2 which is considered to be one of the worst sequels if not one of the worst films ever made 
and it's all about like hypnotism and locusts, you know, from Africa. And it's, it's, it's just, it's so out there, but the whole like crust of that movie was they went back to the first one and go, well, what was left in the first one that we could go back and look at? And they built this movie underneath the mystery of how Marin died. It was like, yeah. okay, well, how did he die? And it was like, I think it was pretty self-evident that the guy had a heart attack. I mean, we didn't have to see him like hold his chest and fall over and fall dead. I mean, to me, I think that would have been very just, there would have been no point. The whole shock of him coming in there with him dead on the bed was what they went for. And it was perfect. And to go back and just explain that. And then they got James Earl Jones in it as the little African, you know, when he was uh, in Africa, like that was the boy that he was possessed with Pazuzu before and he saved them. And that's what started their beef. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, him and uh, Apollo Creed. I mean, they got to go a couple rounds. So it's really just a, it's a bad movie. I mean, it's one of those movies where it's like kind of visually interesting, but it's very, very bad. And then the exorcist three is there's a cult following for that movie and I don't get it. I know there's people out there that actually put it higher than the exorcist and say it's a better movie. And to me, that's like saying like jaws two is better than the original jaws. I'm like, you're, <laughs> you're nuts saying that I'm like the artistry level that's in the exorcist is nowhere in the exorcist three. You might like some of the stuff there with like the Gemini killer and, you know, father cares does come back in this movie. It turns out in the exorcist three, he didn't die in the fall. And that Pazuzu, to play a prank on the priest, ended up taking the soul of a serial killer known as a Gemini killer who was coincidentally executed at the same time that Marin, uh, that uh, Karis killed himself, and he put his soul into Karis. And the whole movie is about the Gemini killer jumping out of Karis's body and going into different people to commit the, act, commit the murders. And it's just, I think it's very bad i don't think it's a very good movie i i think you know you got some decent actors in there like brad duroff and everything but i don't see why people put it up higher and i think if you put it higher than the exorcist i think you need to question your entire taste in film but then there's also the prequels which the prequels they actually have a more of an interesting backstory than the films themselves because they brought in uh is it paul schrader Paul Schrader did Dominion, the prequel to The Exorcist. Yeah, Yeah, he came in originally to do this movie, and he made the movie. And when they looked at it, they were like, we can't put this out. This is not in the vein of, like, I think it was like 2004-era horror movies. It's like, people are not going to want to watch this, because his movie was very, like, more psychological, probably a little bit more in the vein of the original Exorcist. So they bring in, of all people, Rennie Harlan, you know, the guy who made Cutthroat Island and Nightmare on Elm Street 4 to come in there. That's a good and, nightmare movie, by the way. Uh, that's a, yeah. He made Die Hard 2. That's, that Rennie Harlan turned stuff in on time and under budget. He was the original Die, Brett And Die Hard 2, I think, is actually the worst Die Hard movie. But we'll, um, maybe we'll talk about those movies another day. But, um, yeah, they bring him in, of all people, to go and, you know, reshoot this. So he used, like, 20 30% of what Paul Schrader directed and put his whole like spin on it and both versions are terrible i think that paul schrader's is a little bit better uh Rennie's harlan's is just it's it's an abysmal movie it's so freaking bad and, well, paul, paul schrader's movie is answering questions you didn't really need answered 
but it's well, done it's, it's done kind of artfully and tastefully. Rooney Harlan's is the slapdash modern studio what they wanted out of a horror movie. Oh yeah, there's gore and people hanging upside down with holes in them and you know hyenas killing kids. I mean, it's it's really weird, but the whole thing I kind of get out of that was like, you know, again, they were just like we're retelling this thing with Father Marin and it's like you tried it in part 2, it didn't work and now we're going to go back and try to do it again. It's like no one needs to know that story. Again, it's like less is more. And just knowing that, like, okay, this guy's got a history. It's just, again, it's like you, you go back and it's like you can go down one of two ways. You either do this movie and the whole thing with him and Pazuzu is either underwhelming, which makes you go, then why did you make this movie? Or you go the George Lucas way and make everything so over the top that you just go, well, it doesn't match up with what came at or what came after it timeline wise. So again, it's just, I, I don't like the ideas of these prequels and these movies kind of really prove it that they're just, they're stupid ideas when you're going to go back and try to explain something that doesn't need to be explained. Yeah. It's it, again, it's explaining too much. And those are the problems with those, but you know, Nick, we're not done yet with our little series here. We're going to wrap it up next time with poltergeist. We're going to go into the eighties and this is a very different film than the two that we've just done with the omen and the exorcist. There's, it's a completely different sensibility driving it, even though the subject matter may be similar and there are indeed lots of strange things and tragic things that have spun out of that movie. Oh yeah, totally. I think it's, it's in a lot of the same vein though. I think we're going to find a lot of parallels with, you know, the exorcist as far as like even kind of the plot there with the parent and everything and trying to seek help with stuff, but you know, we'll, we'll get into it. But I think, uh, Poltergeist is a movie that probably would have never happened if it wasn't for The Exorcist. And I think it's kind of a nice little, you know, even though they have the whole cursed movies and weird stuff that happened after it, they kind of keep it in, uh, keep it connected. I also think it kind of the whole, you know, explaining the unexplained with normal families or whatever is kind of like the motif that's kind of going on here a little bit even more than cursed movies. Because even with The Omen, it's like, okay, you got a family that has a son that comes in who turns out to be the devil or the devil's son. And it's like, okay, kind of a nice family here, something bad happens. Exorcist, nice family here, something bad happens. Poltergeist, the same thing. So it's kind of the uh, cursed family slash movie people <laughs> retrospective. Yeah, and we'll talk about it more on the show, but Poltergeist in a lot of ways is a commentary about, you know, bad things that can happen in movies and what that looks like. But we'll, we'll get into that next time. Folks, you can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com, as well as feeds to everywhere you can subscribe and download the show. You can follow the show's social media at filmstrippod on Twitter and Instagram and filmstrippodcast on Facebook. We appreciate your support. Until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.